On this episode of The Diff, two of the creators of GraphQL, Dan Schaefer and Lee Byron, join me to discuss this query language for your API. Learn how GraphQL was born from a need to make Facebook's mobile newsfeed more compelling. We answer how GraphQL compares to REST, and we talk about GraphQL's move to the Linux Foundation. I also get really excited when I hear that Dan runs a GraphQL-based project for soccer statistics. Let's get to it. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for taking the time to join me today. Can each of you tell me a bit about yourselves? Yeah, I can start. Uh, so my name is Dan Schaefer. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm one of the co-creators of GraphQL along with Lee and Nick. Uh, started at Facebook uh, in 2010. I was actually an intern in 2009 on the newsfeed team. I uh, wasn't really sure whether I wanted to go into industry or go into research and spent a year here and or spent three months here as an intern and went, oh, I want to be here. I want to be working, rejoined, uh, joined newsfeed and worked on that for about two years and then started on a project in order to sort of rethink how we represented sort of stories in our internal data model. Um, we're just trying to figure out what the first client was. And this is right around the time that we were building the native iOS app in 2012 and started talking with Lee and started talking with Nick and every, the rest of the story starts from there, at least uh, from where I sit. And we'll get into that story soon. Yep. Hey, I'm Lee. I've used to be at Facebook. I left earlier this year, uh, but I was at Facebook for 10 years starting in 2008. Uh, where I worked on a ton of different things. Um, during my time at Facebook, I've been a data scientist, a product designer, an engineer, an engineering manager, and worked on a bunch of different projects um, and um, tried to spend as much of my time as close to open source as possible. So um, got to work on React in the early days, open sourced a lot of projects that we worked on here, including GraphQL. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today. Um, looking forward to hearing about the history of GraphQL. Um, so let's start there a bit. How did GraphQL come to be? Like, was there one issue that necessitated its creation, or was it a general problem that you were trying to solve? What what brought it about? I think the specific issue that really led to its creation was the switch, and this is back in 2011 and 2012, of Facebook's mobile applications from being HTML5 applications to being native applications. And that was a huge shift for how we structured, you know, Facebook, which for a long time was a website. It was synonymous with www.facebook.com. And now it didn't just have to deliver a web experience like we were powering with our mobile app with HTML5. It had to deliver the data that a native app would use. And so at the time we were prototyping an application that was sort of codenamed Wild, and they were trying to figure out how are we going to build newsfeed. That was the first thing they were going to build, and they were using some of our sort of existing APIs. We had an, F, uh, an API called FQL, which gave sort of a SQL-like uh, interface over the way our data worked. We had a data called the Gra we had an API called the Graph API, which was sort of your restish API that would give you the information about a given uh, you know object on Facebook. And what we realized was newsfeed didn't really fit in nicely to either one of those sort of paradigms and we needed a new way of thinking about it. I think that was sort of the origin story of GraphQL is we had this very real problem of how do we build a really compelling native mobile feed and GraphQL was a solution to that. There's some other pieces to that story that I think are pretty interesting. Um, one is just recognizing how tightly tied to the web stack Facebook was at that time. Uh, I think a lot of people who first encounter GraphQL or, or think about building products these days um, approach it very much in the sense where they build an API that serves data and then they build a client application that consumes that data. And that couldn't be further away from what Facebook looked like in the early years. It very much was 
a black box where you asked for something and it gave you a web page back. And that's exactly how newsfeed worked at kind of every layer of the stack. Um, there was a deep assumption that you would eventually get HTML. So even though we did have some APIs that Dan talked about, um, they were really meant for our, uh, our third party partners. Um, they were not being used by our own internal applications. So our, our applications were all web-based. And uh, we, we kind of tried to bootstrap building this new native app by using the existing APIs that we had built for our third party um, partners and found them super lacking. And, and part of digging into why was realizing that you know, they solved very specific use cases for those partners, but they weren't generalized APIs. Um, another thing that's pretty interesting is we had a very rich programming model on the server that let us build new experiences very quickly. And we were trying to think about how we could like bridge the gap. How can we make our native mobile applications leverage all this work that we'd put in on the server over the, the previous few years? And that's how Nick actually uh, joined this effort with, with Dan and me. So a lot of times I get to ask the question about how is GraphQL different from other web service architectures like REST, right? Are they competing architectures? Are they complementary? Can you sort of go into that? Why, why wasn't REST considered? You know, why'd you go to create this whole new thing? I think they're actually complementary. And that's originally how we were thinking about GraphQL, is that GraphQL would be sort of a layer beyond our Graph API, which was REST-based. Um, and then over time, we realized we just needed less and less of the REST-specific pieces. And these days, our, our apps are entirely GraphQL-based and, and don't really think in terms of REST at all. Um, but for many years, REST was an integral part of how our applications worked. It was the way that we did uh, write mutations. So if we wanted to perform some action, we did that to a REST endpoint, and then we would use GraphQL to read data back out. Um, but both of them are abstractions over the exact same data. I think that's part of why REST APIs became so successful over the last 15 years is it's, it's this relatively clean abstraction where you have some set of types and each of those types have some properties. And a REST API is a really nice way to say, well, for each type, there's a URL. And then for each you know, object of that type, there's a that URL slash that ID. And that's going to give you back a JSON blob where each field in the JSON blob corresponds to one of the properties on that object. And and that's amazing. I, I think, you know, we we sometimes take for granted how how clean of an abstraction that was. I think where GraphQL takes that one step further is recognizing that a big missing piece in REST APIs is talking about how all of those elements relate to each other. And instead of thinking about them as discrete objects with of a type and with properties, expanding to include these relationships and then um, helping to solve all the problems that encountering those relationships end up having on the application. Like there's only a certain set of, of objects you need to fetch, a certain subset of those properties that you actually need. Um, how to fetch those all the objects you need on it to actually render a view as efficiently as possible. So there's a lot of those kinds of problems that when we looked out into the ecosystem, we saw everyone struggling with with those sets of problems. 
I think in many ways, if you look at the sort of original evolution of GraphQL in, you know, this would have been early 2012, it almost started from this idea of REST of like, okay, let's get an object, let's get the original user, and then we just want to specify which of the fields that we get. And sometimes when we talk about another object in relation, we don't necessarily want the hyperlink. We know that we're going to go and fetch it. So let's do another round trip. And in many ways, we like, you know, we took this idea of, hey, there's probably an object in the graph. That's something that we had internally in our representation. It's that REST had. It's something that GraphQL has as well. And then slowly expanded it to meet really what was the use case of our native mobile clients, which is they sort of knew exactly which subset of those objects that they needed. They didn't necessarily need a canonical URL for each of them that they would do around trips or that relationship. They just wanted to be able to say, hey, this is the data from your graph that I'm going to need. And GraphQL emerged in order to fill that particular need. I think as we've seen it sort of expand across the ecosystem, a lot of other places have found this is super valuable as well. If you're building a really rich native mobile client, you kind of want your API, especially if it's talking to internal clients, to say, hey, you, you tell me what you need and I'll, I'll give that to you. That's really what you want. I think one of the things that, at least to me, was most interesting as it expanded across the ecosystem is how many companies also found it useful for their third-party APIs to say, hey, yeah, you can actually, even as a third-party client, Tell us which subset you need, and that's going to be valuable for you and valuable for us as well. So there are two primary components for GraphQL. Um, there's the specification and the reference JavaScript implementation. And then there's some ancillary projects that go along with it. Was a specification something that you decided to do right from the get-go? Or did you do the implementation first and then decide to write the spec? Or how did that whole process come about? In the beginning, there wasn't even GraphQL. There was just... So actually, the, the, the very beginning was this prototype that Nick built called SuperGraph that was much closer to um, what I was mentioning before of trying to expose all this work that we had done on the server to build uh, a nice data-fetching model. So he tried to make the thinnest possible layer to allow someone outside of that programming environment to do the exact same things. And we got excited by that and started, Dan and I started applying our ideas on top of that as well. And that ultimately became GraphQL, but it became GraphQL through a series of constant iteration and kind of comparing it against the problem that our iOS team was trying to solve at the time and eventually getting it to the point where it was doing something useful for Facebook. It wasn't until years later that we decided to kind of formalize what GraphQL was because from 2012 up through 2015, GraphQL was defined as the set of code in the Facebook code base <laughs> under the folder called GraphQL. Um, and, you know, I think at a couple points in the past, we had talked about what would it look like to generalize GraphQL or to share or open source GraphQL in some way, but it was always kind of a, a harrowing concept and, and we always kind of punted on it. And... The the change was in 2015, we had just watched React open source. And although they kind of got off to a, a rocky start, people were not super thrilled with JSX. Um, eventually, the community seemed to come around. And, and that project was extremely successful. And I think today, it's it's very clear that um, it, was, it was the right call to open source React. It's one of the most vibrant communities out there. And... The, the, all, a lot of these projects, a lot of these sort of front-end focused open source projects were all happening in a, the same sort of group of people in the company. And uh, one of the sort of sister teams to the React team was working on this project called Relay, 
which tied together React and GraphQL. And they wanted to open source as well. They saw the excitement from React. They had been talking to people in the community kind of um, informally. And they got really excited they wanted to open source it. But they realized open sourcing really doesn't make sense if you can't also open source GraphQL. So then they came to our team and said, we'd love to Re open source relay, would you consider open sourcing GraphQL? And we're like, uh, what? What does that even mean? <laughs> I, I'm not even sure what we would do. Um, should we take the folder of PHP code that we have and like put it somewhere online? <laughs> like, will people pay attention to that? I don't. I don't know that they would. Not that many people use PHP these days. Um, that was certainly true in 2015. Even more true now. Yeah. I think PHP is a little bit waning. Um, but we kind of thought about it and decided, you know, I, it would be worth the effort. But we should really think about what open sourcing GraphQL should look like. And my argument was, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't think that sharing a PHP library was going to be successful. Um, in fact, I didn't want to pick any one language to share it in because I was nervous that since GraphQL was such a new idea, that it would get tied very tightly to whatever language we shipped it as. And everyone who wasn't using that language would would kind of ignore it. So, you know, the PHP community would pick it up and everyone would go, oh, GraphQL isn't that some PHP thing. So the idea of writing a specification was both a solution to our problem of trying to figure out what is GraphQL beyond this blob of code. Um, and then also to try to give someone something that was language agnostic so that they could translate it into language of their choice. And then we built the other version of JavaScript because um, around the same effort, we decided to look back over the previous years of GraphQL and uh, try to fix a lot of ambiguities and inconsistencies and kind of weird quirks that would, had just evolved over time in the language so that we could really be proud of what we were about to release. And the JavaScript implementation started as a playground to figure out what that should look like and as a, a foil to the to the spec. So we'd right. be writing the spec, we'd be writing sort of a, a an algorithm in English and then yeah. say, does this actually make sense? Is this like, how can I test if there's bugs in this? So we'd write it in JavaScript as well and then write real tests. And then we could literally compare code between the JavaScript version and the specification. It's almost like a chicken and egg problem, right? You, you can write some of the spec, write some of your implementation, that goes back into the spec, and then you see more of the spec and write more of the implementation. So yeah. never one, one is never really first. And that's almost exactly <laughs> what it looked like building yeah. this out, is yeah. we would write a little bit of each, and then someone would notice a bug in the JavaScript implementation, and then we'd go look in the spec and realize, oh yeah, that's a bug there too. Um, or someone would look in the spec and see that it differed from the JavaScript implementation in some subtle way. And we realized like, that's actually a JavaScript bug. Like the spec is right and the JavaScript is wrong. Yeah. And especially in the first couple of months after open sourcing, um, the vast majority of contributions we got were people who were inspecting both sides of that coin and, and helping us uh, make sure that they lined up one-to-one. -one. Um, that actually ended up being really nice for a couple of reasons. One is the JavaScript community is huge. So, um, and the Node.js community was uh, decently sized at that point, but was clearly accelerating. And now there's a, a lot of people that are using JavaScript in production on the server. And so that immediately allowed us to capture a huge bun bunch of people just right out of the bat. They could try it. And we also want to build all these tools that 
you know, that, that's part of what makes GraphQL awesome is that it allows for a, a rich ecosystem of tools. And knowing that we'd want to build tools that would run in the browser, that meant those tools needed to be built in JavaScript. And those tools probably needed to parse GraphQL and you know, validate a schema, do all these sort of general purpose things. And we could use that exact same GraphQL.js library that started as sort of an academic project as the actual underpinning of all of the tools that we use at Facebook and in the community. Yeah, in many ways, it was super helpful also to solve that chicken and egg problem that you mentioned that we had sort of the three-year-old implementation that we had done in PHP where, you know, Lee mentioned that we had this super graph prototype that very quickly became, you know, the production version of GraphQL on Facebook that we iterated on and changed the syntax. And if you go back and dig somewhere up, you know, like the original syntax, I think we posted it somewhere, it looks nothing like it. You know, it doesn't even have the curly braces that I think are now synonymous with it. But we evolved it over time and we shifted it, shipped it in August 2012. And by the start of 2015, it was just like a very hardened, you know, set of production code on Facebook servers. And it was not designed for open source. It was not going to be easily extractable. But one thing that we could extract from it was sort of all of the lessons, all the things that we had built and said, you know, this solves the problem that we have right now. But boy, if we were to ever revisit it, I'd love to make this a little bit cleaner. And so that was a lot of what we were able to, I think, bring into the effort that we did in 2015. Um, the other thing that at least to me surprised me about that sort of original open source process was we had given a talk at ReactConf about GraphQL and Relay, and we had just sort of like, you know, shown examples of GraphQL queries and what like a Relay, uh, you know, um, component might look like and just seen, seen what that would be. And then people started trying to reverse engineer GraphQL from that. They would look at the slides and say, oh, this is cool. Let me try and figure out how this would work. And I think that to me was a really compelling reason to focus on the spec where, you know, we almost knew before we formally released a spec and formally released a reference implementation that when we open sourced GraphQL, people were going to be trying to build versions of it in all the various languages. And so to release a reference implementation we would kind of be releasing a spec even if we didn't, where people would just copy right. this like reference implementation. Having the spec would allow us to make sure that, you know, what now seems inevitable, but even then seemed probable, you know, creation of a bunch of these other GraphQL libraries in different languages would actually all be compatible because, you know, the worst case scenario would be you end up with four different libraries that all speak slightly different variants on GraphQL. And especially, you know, for client-side tools like Relay, suddenly like these servers aren't, you know, mutually compatible, you end up with issues. So, Lee, you mentioned you create the specification as language agnostic. You have a JavaScript reference implementation because JavaScript, you know, is very popular. Very, you can build tools around it. But that must mean that there could be or should be other implementations of GraphQL in the industry. Um, who do you know that's implemented the specification, and how is it being used out in the world? I think that was our biggest fear in building this because if if we were wrong, we would have put all this effort into a spec, mm -hmm. and then people would have ignored it, right? And and then it would have been, you know half a year of our team's time kind of wasted. Um, and I, I hoped, my, my hope was that we would see two or three implementations in different languages by the end of that same year. Uh, but we actually ended up with about a dozen different implementations oh, wow. within a couple months wow. of releasing it. And you know, those first implementations were maybe not totally complete, and uh, were definitely enthusiast level rather than production grade. Um, but it spoke to the excitement that was out there and the how there was this sort of early seed of a community. And I think part of what's really cool is that those original projects, a, the, a lot of them ultimately did evolve to become production grade pretty quickly um, within under a year af after yeah. open sourcing. And the people who were responsible for them 
have gone on to become some of the most important people in the GraphQL community, have started companies around um, supporting GraphQL, uh, have done lots of really interesting things, have helped us seed the community to the size that it is now. So um, GraphQL and and its implementation, actually, the JavaScript implementation are amongst our most popular GitHub projects for at Facebook. It's in top ten in terms of GitHub stars, or you know, if you if you use that as a metric. <laughs> um, so um, as GraphQL and the community around it grew, I imagine the management of that community became a growing need amongst the core team here at Facebook, right? So like some so that's like a good problem to have. You have this big community that really wants your wants to use your projects, but you have to manage it somehow. Um, how did you handle the community management at GraphQL as it blew up after you open sourced it? With mixed success. <laughs> it was a learning opportunity. Um, I think we're in a pretty healthy place now, but there have been a lot of bumps along the way. I think maintaining an open source project is a ton of work. It doesn't always line up with a single company's goals unless that company's goal is to make a open source community large, which Facebook's is not, and most of the other companies that are involved in these projects are not as well. And um, you know, you really have to just prioritize all of the non-technical work that goes into supporting a community like that. Um, these days, we have a lot of touch points to supporting a community. We have people beyond the original co-creators who help us organize events, meetups, uh, newsletters, so that way we can sort of distribute the responsibility for these things. We have a regular working group meeting um, that's mostly technical focused, but uh, I would say like one out of four things discussed is uh, meta. That's about like organizing events or um, planning together. And that's also been really helpful. Um, trying to take this management off of GitHub has been really useful. I think GitHub is is very nice for maintaining an actual library of code. But GitHub is less useful to provide the actual tools to help maintain a community. Yeah, I'd like to hear your perspective on that, Dan, about managing the community. Yeah, I think it was an, it was an interesting trade-off. And I think one of the things that was unique about GraphQL, and I think we discovered, is what we open sourced was a spec and a reference implementation as opposed to a library. I think one of the things that we learned is the you know relationships with the community and the way that you manage it are very different between those two. And there are some huge advantages to having the spec and the reference implementation. When somebody wants to go and build an implementation in Ruby, that's a pure win, right? That's fantastic. It's going to allow us to you know expand this community, um, you know, as opposed to a library where it's like you know if somebody wants to port a section of this library into another language to make it more efficient. Suddenly, there are trade-offs to consider. Is this the right thing to do? Is this going to make it more efficient? But what's the complexity? So there are advantages to having that reference implementation and spec. But there are also downsides in that suddenly the work that we were doing, for example, on our internal, uh, at this point, it was now in the hack language implementation, you know, it's not necessarily directly related or a contribution to the, a contribution to the reference implementation that fixes a bug. Okay, that's awesome. But if it also fixes a bug in the spec, suddenly this is going to affect you know, the hack language implementation internally and also these 12 implementations on the outside. And so I think the, you know, almost uh, expansive effect of the spec where a change in the spec actually doesn't just affect itself like it would with a library or and you would still affect your downstream dependencies, but it affects everything that it touches, even just an implementation detail. I think that was something that, at least in my mind, 
is now obvious, but I don't think was obvious in 2015 when we embarked on this and sort of changed the dynamic in the community and like led to, I think, some of the almost just like initial hiccups of like, oh, wow, this, you know, maintaining the GraphCo community is just fundamentally different than maintaining the React community and fostering that community. I think that was one of the things that we quickly uncovered. So when the community needs are high, right, but like the responses maybe from the project maintainers are kind of low or they're they're dragging a bit. I, I see personally, I see like four options, right? You can dedicate more resources to actually deal with the community. You can let it languish and just let it fall apart. You can archive it, archive the project, say we're not going to work on this anymore, or you can transfer ownership of the project. So we decided to transfer ownership of GraphQL over to the Linux Foundation. So we're creating GraphQL is going to have its own foundation within the Linux Foundation. Why do you think that was the best route to take? Uh, do you think, and why do you think that's going to make GraphQL GraphQL successful moving forward? Yeah, I think it was a huge step forward. I think it actually takes a lot of the needs that you know really all of the parties who are currently involved with GraphQL has and solves them really nicely. Where I think you know in 2015, Lee just described. We weren't really sure, you know, are people actually going to implement this? Is this going to be a spec and a reference implementation? And, you know, some people will find it interesting. And I think, you know, we saw the massive expansion into, you know, a number of companies using it, a number of vendors using it, implementations, all these languages. And I think very quickly it shifted where, you know, the day we open sourced it, uh, the center of the GraphQL ecosystem was Facebook. And like today, the center of the GraphQL ecosystem is not Facebook. It's GraphQL itself. The ecosystem is self-sustaining. And I think it makes sense at this point to look and say, you know, Facebook still wants to be heavily involved. You know, it's obviously something that we care deeply about. We're still working internally to advance the technology, but it makes sense at this point for us to really formally be partners with the rest of the community and say, hey, this is a community effort that we're part of. And I think setting up the foundation, you know, really emphasizes that that's the plan going forward. I'm excited actually to see this lead to Facebook becoming even more invested, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Um, By moving the center of gravity, I think really what we have done is just reflect current reality, right? At this point, GraphQL has been open sourced for longer than it hasn't been. And while that's also true of a lot of our other projects, like Dan was talking about before, a, a language and a general purpose specification is an entirely different beast from a library of code. And uh, I think actually it makes more sense to treat GraphQL much like you would treat a programming language and a programming language that has many implementations. And there aren't that many of those actually, right? If you think about, you know, Python has its one runtime, Java has its JVM. JavaScript is actually the only other language that I know of that has multiple competing runtimes. And this was a problem that the browser world encountered of how do you get all of these runtimes to agree on how to evaluate the JavaScript language? And they helped create a foundation, right? They, or they created a standards body. Oh, um, ECMAScript. Yep. Yeah, they, they joined ECMA and they rebranded as ECMAScript. Very that, successfully. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> and that had a lot of effects. Um, you know, I, while I'm, I'm proud of... Facebook's role in the open source world. Um, Facebook is one corporate entity and who knows what Facebook will look like five, 10 years from now. And so if we want to set a project like this up for success over the long term, I think putting it in a place where the center of gravity isn't held by any one individual company is only a good thing, right? Because it means as all of our companies evolve and their you know priorities shift over time, 
GraphQL can take on its own path, right? It's its own arrow now. Uh, and and I, that, to me, gives it a additional hope for being stable over the long term um, in much the same way that JavaScript was able to sort of jump beyond its original, you know, it was like from the, the worlds of Netscape and, and Microsoft. I think, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think it's fair to say if, it, if GraphQL did not have a specification, the route of where that project would have gone, if it was just a reference implementation that was put out in open source, there, a foundation probably wouldn't have happened, right? It's the specification that's making this possible. Do you believe that's true? Certainly to a degree, although I think, I, I don't know, maybe this is, you know, hindsight, mm-hmm. um, me applying hindsight too much, but I think if we hadn't have in, written a spec from the beginning and we had started with just one library, we might have had a, a, a rockier initial uh, year or so, but I think we would have ultimately le- arrived at the same conclusion that, you know, lots of servers come in lots of different languages and, as we saw, GraphQL is really popular and um, people were really excited about it. And people would have ported whatever library we put out there, it would have gotten ported into other languages anyway. And that either would have ended up in a very fractured ecosystem, as Dan was talking about before, or we could have evolved it, right? We could have, I, I, I'd like to think that we would have caught that as it was happening, um, especially as those that early set of people that were working on these things were were really proactive in reaching out to us and, and we were had really friendly relationships with them. You know, the, the author of the GraphQL Ruby library and the GraphQL Python library were all saying like, hey, we've got these different implementations of GraphQL, like now what? Right. I think uh, if we had an open source to spec within three to six months, it would have been like, oh man, we should have open sourced a spec and we would have ended up writing it. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Or even if we didn't write a spec, there, you know, a spec is a, like a formal outcome. It's like an agreement. We all yeah. agree that this is what GraphQL is. And and I think a spec is a really nice way to capture that. Another way that we could have done it is just with an informal group, right? We could have gotten together and every time we noticed a discrepancy between these between a pair of these libraries, we could have just talked to each other and be like, okay, well, mine works this way and yours works that way. What should be the right way so we can get these to line up? Right. And, and then in some hopefully ways, that's the GraphQL working group now. Yeah, that's kind of what the gr- working group is. And then hopefully you document those decisions you made. And if you actually go look at a lot of other open source projects that have a similar kind of relationship where there's many pieces of a project that are spread out across organizations, these decisions end up getting uh, saved as like GitHub issues. So people will reference, oh, in this GitHub issue in Webpack, they decided to do XYZ. So which means if you're some Webpack plugin, then you have to do it this way because of that decision, right? And they talked about it and they figured it out. And then just these remnants, these fragments of decisions get left around. So in many ways, a spec is just like, a way to combine all those decisions into one place. But I think we would have ended up with a very similar working style and a similar relationship between all the people in the community that may actually have still led to something like a foundation being uh, a compelling thing to advance the technology. Yeah, I think the fundamental thing that makes the foundation make sense is the fact that GraphQL you know, other than one specific implementation, which isn't even enough to describe it as GraphQL, like it is fundamentally not a library. It is fundamentally a language or, you know, a protocol or an agreement or whatever you want to call it. And I think that distinction just fundamentally shifts how you, you know, how the community is going to operate and how it eventually makes sense for, you know, the community to be maintained or in this case, maintain itself. 
All right, so I'm going to ask one last question about GraphQL. So let's assume that the foundation is formed. Um, what do both of you see as the future of GraphQL in that context? And you can answer this question as far as do you see the spec diverging a lot from its current form, or what applications are you going to see GraphQL being used now? Where do you see the future, Dan? I think the one that comes to mind to me is I suspect that directives, which are an aspect of GraphQL that allows sort of the client to almost add hints to the server or add additional behavior to the server, I think we'll see a lot more of those. And I think we'll begin to see those emerge almost as the equivalent of like the standard library for GraphQL that other languages might have, or at least, you know, the key packages that you have to be using where, you know, I don't necessarily know that we'll see, you know, in five years, the spec will be unrecognizable. I actually, I hope the spec is very recognizable over in five years. You don't want a language to be, you know, radically changing. But as we come up with new and interesting behaviors, I can imagine somebody going and building something interesting and hiding it behind a directive in their implementation and working with it. And it stabilizes and they're using it in production. It's really good. And they come back and say, hey, this is how this directive behaves for us. I think it's going to be useful for a lot of people. What do you think? And do we end up almost with this consolidated? Oh, yeah, we all agree that this is valuable and this is how it should work. So if you put, you know, this, you know, at defer or at stream directive on something that says that you want this particular piece of the query to potentially come in a different like payload or you want this connection to get streamed, that will end up becoming almost an agreement either as part of the spec as sort of an optional you may implement this or as just like a thing that various clients and servers agree upon outside of the spec. I can imagine seeing a lot of evolution there. In many ways, we almost have paved the way for that uh, with at include and at skip, which are sort of the directives that are in the spec and that emerged because we'd been effectively implementing that behavior without them for a year and a half before open sourcing and said, wait, this is super valuable. Our clients need it. Our servers need it. Let's define it. I can imagine seeing more of those. I have two goals with the foundation. First, to speak a little bit to what Dan was talking about, um, Evolving the spec over time, I think, has actually been one of the things we've done a really good job of over the last few years, and we don't need a foundation to continue to evolve the spec. Um, I think what the foundation will help us do is two things. One is that it'll be a vote of confidence and a an expectation of stability for GraphQL going forward. Because as we see a lot of companies that are excited about using GraphQL, the thing that they're most nervous about actually is it changing. And that's, that's always been sort of in the back of our mind as we evolve things is to have a high bar for change. It has to be extremely valuable to make a change to the spec because change cost is extremely high. But by putting GraphQL in a neutral space, it basically means that there's no one organization or person that can pull GraphQL in a way that the rest of the community doesn't agree is a good thing. So I, I, I see that as a way to help, help tell the story to everyone who might use GraphQL that this thing is going to be stable. So like Dan was saying, I, I hope five years from now it's extremely recognizable, right? It should be very stable. But I think the, the, really the big thing that the foundation lets us do is it gives us a place to coordinate community effort beyond just technical work. Because I think at this point, most of the GraphQL core technical work is relatively healthy. And there's not actually that much of it. A lot of what we've been focusing on over the last year or so has been community outreach, documentation, event planning, a lot of these things that engineering organizations specifically are not always very good at. 
and a decentralized community can do their best at, but are sort of fundamentally limited in how, how well they can get that done. So what I really hope to see for GraphQL over the next couple of years is just dramatically improved developer relations, much better events, much better documentation, uh, much better community support that takes all of the various people that are already chipping in to make this work and then does a much better job of joining those efforts together. Hello, this is Pascal. And this is Mihaela. And we are the hosts of the Inside Facebook Mobile Podcast. Every month, we talk to engineers, designers, and managers. Product managers, program managers, and even engineering managers. We explore how products are built. The unique challenges we face while building mobile apps at Facebook scale. And we don't shy away from going really deep into the technical weeds. If you want to learn about the history of Facebook Home and Instagram stories. How we release each of our apps once a week. And many other topics. Subscribe to us on all podcasting platforms by searching for Inside Facebook Mobile. I want to shift gears just away from GraphQL and talk about some other stuff. Um, every show, I like to ask my guests, what was their first commit or pull request to an open source project? What what got you started to open source? So Dan, do you remember what was your first piece of code that you contributed to an open source project where there was a direct commit or a pull request to another project? Oh, geez. I have no idea. If I had to guess, it actually might have been GraphQL or, <laughs> or I, I, no, I think I might have had a documentation commit to React because, you know, this is right after the open source and I'm like, React is cool. I should work on that. And I was like, I, I don't know anything about this, but I can fix that typo. Sweet. So I don't know. I, I can I can look it up quickly and see what it is because it might be a more interesting story than that. But React and GraphQL are the ones that come to mind. My first interaction with open source was with the processing project um, a really long time ago, like when I was in college. Um, I was doing a lot of sort of interactive visualization and art with the processing toolkit and uh, was frustrated that there weren't animation libraries out there. And so I, I wrote an animation library for processing. And uh, and that was sort of before the days of GitHub. So it was just literally a zip file on my personal website that was linked to the processing forum. Um, but that was a lot of fun. I, I learned really early just how much work goes into um, helping people solve their problems and what community uh, relationships look like for an open source project. Um, but then from from then, I didn't do a lot in open source until um, sort of this, you know, golden era of of Facebook yeah. front end open sourcing. Um, you know, I, I was part of open sourcing React, um, and that's really what pulled me back into it. 2015 and beyond, right? Yeah, yeah. Dan, um, can you talk a little bit about what you're working on at Facebook now? Yeah, beyond GraphQL. Yeah, I'm happy to. I also I do want to flash back a little bit to the, oh, the previous conversation. Sorry, I pulled it up. I, it. I found my very first pull request. It is a three character change to the React tutorial where I realized it was there was a before and after, and one of the lines in the after that had changed wasn't highlighted, and so I submitted it, and Pete Hunt accepted it, and <laughs> now I'm part of the open source community. And I don't know if that's if that's not a good story about like how do you get started in open right. source? It's like go and contribute, go and contribute to documentation, go and contribute to you know, all of the sort of pieces of the open source project and you'll see where it leads you. Yeah, we have this thing at Facebook called the mentorship program that we just tell people any commit, any single grammar fix, anything just to get you started of how to create a pull request that will probably give you the bug to yeah. do more. So, so thanks, Pete. He yeah. Yeah. yeah, as a, I now maintain quite a number of open source projects and my favorite pull requests are the ones that make the documentation better. Yeah, absolutely. 
Sorry, I didn't know you were going to tell us. <laughs> no, I, I, so. I went quickly logged in, so <laughs> found, found it on my phone. Great with mobile technology. It works out that, nicely. Right? Yeah. So um, now, now I'm going to ask, uh, yeah. what are you doing at Facebook nowadays beyond uh, beyond GraphQL? Yeah, so I, I haven't quite moved beyond GraphQL yet. I'm okay. not working on it directly, but these days uh, I'm on a team and I'm actually helping support the team now uh, called Product Elements. So it's part of the core app team, uh, both our iOS app and Android app, uh, and really trying to do... In many ways, what I view I've always been working on at Facebook or have for a long time, which is uh, take the product developers who are trying to build a product and figure out how we can make their lives easier. And by that, I mean, you know, what can we give them at an abstraction level that will make it easier for them to put the pixels that they want to on the screen while at the same time making it so the thing that they built is efficient, the thing that they built is respectful of sort of all these common resources and effectively the fastest path from I want to build this product to now I have a working prototype is also the productionizable one. I think that's something that when I look at a lot of the technologies that we use at Facebook, things like GraphQL, things like React, they all have that in common where they let you build it faster. They let you build it in a more delightful way. And then when you're done, it's also like something you can ship to production. So these days focused, I'm primarily on the Android side, though my team yeah. does both iOS and, and Android and really taking you know what we have on the data fetching side, which is GraphQL, and then we have on the rendering side, which is, you know, Litho and ComponentKit, which are right. two other open source libraries we have, somewhat similar in philosophy to React. And how do we glue them all together? How can we make it so when you're building a brand new feature in the Facebook application, there's sort of the seamless experience between fetching the data, rendering the data, and everything in between? Because the everything in between, there's no clean way of describing. You know, it's the stuff that your app does. Uh, but it's really important. You have to get it right. And a lot of the times, especially when you have these libraries on either end that make things really declarative and really simple. Uh, you know, the guts are in the middle and that's really where the tough stuff is. And we're trying to make it a little bit less tough for product developers. Excellent. Lee, so you left Facebook and you went to Robinhood. Um, how has that been? What are, you, what are you working on over there at Robinhood? It's a lot of fun. Um, at Robinhood, I'm on product engineering, which is uh, makes Robinhood work. And I'm one of the lead web engineers. And, you know, I, I sort of realized, um, you know, earlier this year that I'd spent 10 years at Facebook. Um, I had built lots of awesome stuff, but if I look back on the times that I enjoyed the most, it's when I was helping to build products. And especially since the original creation of GraphQL and thereon, I got deeper and deeper into the product infrastructure hole and I had a lot of fun there, but I started to really miss building products. And one of the things that's really exciting about joining a smaller company like Robinhood is that we actually use a ton of the stuff that I built at Facebook right. and open sourced and that all my colleagues built and open sourced at Facebook. So we use React, we use Flow, we use Yarn, we use a lot of these projects, we use Jest. And it's just been a ton of fun to see what those pieces look like put together in an environment other than Facebook's, an environment other than the place where they grew up. Um, it gives me a totally different perspective on those projects while still letting me contribute back to them. So I'm still very much a part of the open source community of all of these various projects, just like I was while I still worked here at Facebook. Um, but at Robinhood, I get to take on sort of a new product mission, which is really exciting for me. Yeah, that's the power of open source too, right? So you can work on something at a company, move to a different company, but still use the projects that you created at the other company. It's like It's like a tight-knit community, very big community, but it's really like a tight-knit community. Yeah, so. I think, you know, I, and I learned this from from watching other people do this. Um, 
maybe not quite as successfully sometimes, but um, one of my favorite stories is Fabricator, which started here at Facebook as a internal tool. Yeah. Um, it actually used to just be called the diff tool. That's uh, why the podcast here is named the diff. Love it. Um, and that, that was actually my very first task at Facebook 10 years ago. Um, when I started here as a boot camper, it was actually the very first week of the boot camp program at Facebook. Um, the famous Andrew Bosworth was my manager and he terrified me. Um, but he gave me this, this project to build syntax highlighting into the diff tool. So I built syntax highlighting into the diff tool and didn't really know what I was doing. And I ended up with this like 6,000 line change to the code base um, that ultimately got approved. And, and, but later, someone pointed out, why didn't you just use this off-the-shelf open source library that did exactly the same thing? Remember having a facepalm. Uh, but that did give me a great opportunity to get to meet the people who are working on the diff tool, yeah. uh, including one person, Evan Priestley, yeah. who's like uh, in the, the lore of Facebook is one of the most valuable engineers that ever worked at Facebook and also one of the weirdest um, he has an amazing tech talk that he did at Airbnb, I think maybe four or five years ago, that's public on the internet and very much worth watching. It's very, Fantastic. very funny. And um, I remember that Evan got really excited about tools. Um, he evolved the diff tool quite a lot to the point where uh, he really wanted to open source it. And he spent a long time fighting to open source that project and untangle it from the rest of Facebook internal tools. And... Um, I think the week after he open sourced it, he quit, left Facebook, started a new company that just worked on that project. Project. So they just worked on Fabricator the entire time. And I I believe, you know, the Fabricator internals are are still very much there, but the Fabricator project in a a very much vanilla way was how uh, Facebook internal tools worked for for years afterwards. Um, But I, I thought that was kind of amazing that Evan took this, piece of software that he had poured so much of his himself into that he really cared about and found a way to sort of take it with him. And now, you know, I love that he did that because um, at Robinhood, we use Fabricator and it's one of my favorite tools. Um, and, you know, we wouldn't have been able to do that without Evans doing so. Yeah. One of the coolest experiences I had after we open source GraphQL, and there have been a ton of them. It's been, you know, the last, what, three and a half years have been somewhat of a whirlwind, at least in my mind. But I was starting on a side project, just like a toy web app that I was going to build in order to look at stats for soccer that it's two years old and is never going to ship, but I have fun building it. I was like, all right, well, what am I going to use to build this? And I was like, I want all the tools that I know about. I want all the tools that I have at Facebook and use. And I was like, I can have them. And, you know, it's using GraphQL and it's using Relay and it's using, you know, Flow and Jest and all the things you described. And I was sort of like, this is great. Like all of the things that I love about the environment that we have at Facebook, not all of them. There, there is some stuff that, you know, I wasn't able to duplicate quite exactly, but I was still able to get that like development environment. And, you know, even for this toy app, which has one developer and zero monthly active users, like I'm getting to work with these fantastic tools. So it's did you actually develop this tool, Stats for Soccer? Yes. Okay. I, do, do you want it? I want it. For okay, real. cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, my kids play soccer, and I've oh, been wanting to keep oh, stats perfect. for them. So. Yeah. Okay, great. See, I learned something. Yeah, every it works out nicely. So, all right. Well, um, 
that's it for today. I mean, Lee and Dan, this was fascinating. I'd love to hear the history of GraphQL. I, one thing I didn't know was that it was started in 2012 and only became open source in 2015. So you had that three-year internal gap, which I didn't, maybe I knew that, but I didn't really, didn't really process I, with me. I actually think it was really important that we yeah. did that because, you know, one of the interesting things about this spec and reference implementation is, you know, we have this philosophy at Facebook of we're only going to open source stuff that we use internally. Like we want to have it of like, hey, this is a thing that we've been using. We are confident that it is good. Well, spec and a reference implementation, like how do you open source that when you're using it internally? And the answer is the thing that we open sourced was a description and a JavaScript port of the thing that we had been using in production, powering the newsfeed on our iOS and Android app for three years. And so the fact that we had that, I think, is one of the reasons why we could open source GraphQL with confidence. It wasn't an idea that we'd had and we're like, oh, yeah, we should write a spec and reference implementation. It was an idea that we had and it used to power a lot of the really critical parts of Facebook and then said, hey, this is really good. Other people will want this. Yeah. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me today on the diff, and I really appreciate it. And um, see you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. thanks for having us. Hi, this is Joel Marcy, creator and host of the diff. If you liked what you heard today, tell your friends, like it, share it, review it, get us heard. Learn more about our program at opensource.facebook.com. And if the content you heard today or from any of our podcasts piqued your interest, check out facebook.com/careers to learn more about the challenges we're solving in running an open source program at scale. I'm out.